The reading this morning is from Romans 8, 1 through 15. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. This is the word of the Lord. So if we were to take a poll of people who actually were pretty familiar with the Bible, and we were going to ask them, what's the most complicated book in the New Testament? I think it's likely Romans would come up, because it is complex. And Paul's language in Romans is sometimes delightful and other times confusing. But in Romans this morning, we read what I call one of the crescendos of the text. Imagine Romans is a piece of music. And like great music, there's crescendos, and then it goes down and crescendos again. I think one of the crescendos of Romans is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I think another crescendo comes by the time you get to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I want you to give yourself up as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable 
unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to the patterns of this world any longer, but be conformed to the pattern of Christ. So, how do we, I'm going to make up a word, okay? How do we uncomplex Romans? How do we uncomplicate it? I'm going to try. And here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to tell the story of Romans chapter 1 through the crescendo in Romans chapter 8. By an overview of what Paul's already said. And second, I'm going to try to tell this story with a personal narrative informing this deep doctrine. And the personal narrative is primarily Paul himself. I'll borrow from his life to try to illustrate this message. Paul begins the book of Romans by saying, you know what? There's a God out there, and everybody knows it. There's a God out there, and all of us have a conscience. There's a God out there, and because we all have a conscience, we realize we're not living up to the standard of morality that we think we ought to live up to. Or as Paul puts it another way, actually what's going on there is the law of God that I know very well as a rabbi, that rudimentary law of God, not all of it, but the basic law of God is inscribed not just in tablets that came down from Mount Sinai, it's inscribed on the hearts of every human being. That's why the inner conscience is pricked. That's why everybody knows, unless he or she suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, that God exists and God ought to be followed. That's the law of God. And everybody, no matter who they are, Jews or Gentiles, religious or not, they're without excuse. Second thing he says is this. Even though we know the law, even the rudimentary law which is written on our hearts, or like me, even if you know the law inside and out, as a rabbi, you, you know you can't follow it. You realize that no matter what you do, you come up short. No matter how you try to achieve righteousness, you're below the curve. That's because, Paul says, all have sinned. All, capital all, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even those who know God and know the law. He also says in another place, actually in Philippians, he says, the reason I know this is because, let me remind you of who I was. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I knew the law inside and out, and though he doesn't say that in Philippians in terms of his training, he was trained under Gamaliel, the chief legal scholar in Judaism. 
He said, I knew the law inside and out. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I spent my entire life trying to achieve righteousness. I get it. And I know the law. And it became apparent to me that I always fell short. Every attempt at righteousness was far below the bar. Furthermore, I began to realize I was actually a slave to the law that was supposed to help me follow God. I became legalistic with my life, and other people were slaves to sin. Paul, in terms of moral standing, I'm talking about outward morality, he would not have been one of those guys who was a slave to sin, as into what is often called in old school language, licentiousness. He knew the law of God, and he wouldn't have gotten involved in some of the sins that the Gentiles, he says, were involved in. But he knew his heart, and he knew just like a Gentile who didn't really know the law and who lived according to the lust of the flesh, he too fell short of the glory of God, and he couldn't measure up. And then he said, when I found Jesus, or better, better stated, when Jesus found me. When I was on my way to persecute people who followed Jesus, and I was knocked off my horse by a light, and a voice from heaven said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It was then that I realized that it was the Lord that I was persecuting and that same Lord that I was after and his people was calling me to himself. And then I realized, then I realized that my only hope was in the one who came to forgive sins. The only one who could forgive sins And the one who took my sin and every other individual who turns to him and placed it on himself, he became for us sin, says Paul. So we might become the righteousness of God. How? By following the law? No. How? By being more passionate? No. How? By coming up with a ledger concerning how many people I've led to Jesus? No. Only one way. Because Christ did it for me. And when I realized that, said Paul, when I realized that, I was overwhelmed. By the way, probably it's true that when Paul wrote his epistles, he spoke them. We do know that on most occasions he had a scribe. And he was probably dictating these letters. And what I want to believe, whether or not it's true, I think it is. But whether or not it's true, what I want to believe is this. is Paul is dictating these letters. And he gets to Romans, what we call chapter 7. And he talks about the pendulum between good and evil. And his heart going back and forth. And he's never able to somehow get it on the mark. And then, then his frustrated voice raises into a crescendo, and he says, but wait, there is therefore, 
no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I may vacillate. Yes, I may sin. Yes, I may fall. But I'm in Christ Jesus. And because I'm in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Who is it that condemns? It would be Jesus because he's got the right to condemn. Who is it that condemns? Not Jesus because he's forgiven. There's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean, Paul? That means that now for the first time ever, you have the ability because of the Spirit of God, not because of you, you have the ability to walk in the Spirit Not to follow the cravings of your sinful flesh and not to try to conform to the righteousness of the law. What you have now for the first time is the ability to follow Jesus in an unfettered love for God. Paul says, you know what? Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. That's called slavery. You know why? Because a lot of times you're going to choose sin. And before long, the thing that you chose, which is sin, is going to become your master, and you're going to be a slave to sin, and you're going to be a slave to your own foolish choices. That's not freedom, says Paul. Freedom is the ability to follow Jesus Christ. And because of God's love in Christ, I now have the ability to do that. My friends, um, if this message resonates with you, I want you to remember a few things. You can't be good enough to stop focusing on that. I want you to remember something else. Not only can you not be good enough, but you can't forgive your own sins. So stop wallowing in guilt. You know what else is true? You can't even prove your love for God because it's not necessary for you to prove your love for God. You know why? Because when you were in your sins, God loved you in Christ He reached out first and chose you. Now, you can love him, but you don't need to prove it. You don't need to prove it in such a way that it becomes another level of righteous requirement. You're free to love him. Live in that freedom. Just love the one who died for you. I I end with just story. Paul actually has already used the analogy of marriage in this book, but he used it in a different way than I'm about to use it. June 12, 1981, at the front of a church stood my father and my future father-in-law. And I came in the side door with a bunch of buddies they called groomsmen. And I lined up on that side 
of my father and future father-in-law. And I waited. I waited for the one I'd chosen. And then she came down the aisle. And, and she was more beautiful that day than any other day. You know, it's just true. I don't know how they do it. But it's true. It kind of looked a little bit like an angel. And uh, as I was standing up there, I don't remember all the things I was thinking. But I do know this. I know this thought never went through my mind. I never thought to myself, oh, no. I got to stop this dating game. I never thought to myself, oh, no, I got to quit trying to find that one. I never thought to myself, oh, no, I can't chase other women anymore. Those thoughts never crossed my mind. I never thought once, I don't get the opportunity to try to find the one I want to be with for the rest of my life because she was in front of me. Because I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And in light of that reality, and in light of that love, all those other things just vanished. I had her. What else did I need? So sometimes when you live your life, you're a little bit like the person who's always wondering about something else. And here's what I want to tell you. It's really simple. Stop it. Stop worrying about your own righteousness. Stop worrying about your perfection. Stop worrying about whether or not you're good enough. Stop worrying about all those things and just be like I was on that day. Ready to receive the love of my life and be committed to her forever. That's why... On occasion, the New Testament describes Christ and his bride, the church. That's why the marriage analogy makes so much sense. It's because when you commit yourself to Jesus Christ, you have the freedom to fall in love with him. When I committed myself to my wife, I had the freedom to live with her forever. And almost 40 years later, I'm still there. Neither one of us are perfect. Neither one of us deserve the other's love. But we're there. So I ask you first a question, and then I give you a reminder. First the question. When you hear this story... Does it sound like your story? Or at least at some point, does it? 
are you in the story and it goes just so far? You're constantly trying to achieve righteousness, but you haven't made that next step into the love of Jesus Christ who forgives, into his overwhelming grace. If, that, if that's your story, please write the rest of the story today, okay? Do it while we pray. Do it when you see the two baptisms you're about to see. Make that commitment to Jesus Christ that people make when they enter into a sacred covenant of marriage and receive the unbelievable love of God. If that's not your story, you can make it your story. And if you do, please tell me about it or somebody else. It needs to be shared. If you need help making the step, I am here, just as Dan is and others, to help you make that step. Nothing would be greater than on a day of baptism, people actually surrendered to the love of Christ on a day like this. So the second thing, if this is your story, embrace it. If it is your story and you know it's your story, stop trying. If it is your story and you know it's your story, don't be overwhelmed by guilt because you're not good enough. If it is your story and you know it's your story, then pursue Jesus. Run after him. Run after the love of your life. That's called living in the spirit. Pursuing the love of your life. Jesus Christ who redeemed you. That's living, my friends. That's why I think when Romans 8, 1 was penned, Paul was shouting, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after spirit. Free. Free at last. Glorious freedom. Let's pray. Lord, the freedom you give us, we know, is undeserved. The freedom you give us, we could not earn for ourselves. And the freedom you give us needs to be exercised. It's not a static reality. It's a reality we have to embrace over and over again when we remember that we've been freed. Freed to live by grace. Freed to live in love. We, we no longer are burdened with the weight of sin. We're no longer burdened with the weight of the law. We've been given freedom. So we pray that you will help us to exercise that freedom, to live in it. We pray for someone here this morning who doesn't yet know that freedom. You're still trying to figure out how to be good enough to earn something. 
and hasn't admitted that it'll never happen. And is yet to come to you and confess their sins and claim you as their Lord and experience freedom. We pray that that will be true for someone today. In the name of Christ our Lord, we ask these things. Amen.